Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. It is lovely to have Emma's mum with us this morning, and it's great to see Liz back with us after surgery. Please stay, if you can, and have a cup of tea or coffee at the end of the service. If you didn't get a copy of the church magazine, The Key, um, last Sunday, please do take one. There seem to be a lot still sitting there. Thank you, Anne. Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Our focus for worship this morning is a few extracts again from the book of Revelation. And so we are going to join together in a hymn, which I have to confess, I don't know, but I think the words are pretty good. God of grace and God of laughter, singing worlds from naught to be. Please stand if you're able as we sing together. to God in prayer and as is usual we will conclude our opening prayers by joining together in the Lord's Prayer in the version and language that feels most normal and natural for each of us. So let us pray together. God of grace and God of laughter, hear our voices joined in thankful prayer. For the moments this week when we have laughed out loud or felt warm inside. For the time spent with other people that have given us joy and happiness. 
for the glimpses of grace in situations that might otherwise have been more difficult or more painful. For hugs and kisses, for favorite foods, for stories and music, for love and for life, we give you thanks. God of grief and God of living, hear our voices joined in thoughtful prayer. The moments this week when we have wept and cried or felt cold and empty inside. For the time spent with other people that brought us sorrow or regret. For our need for forgiveness for the words or actions in situations we made more difficult or more painful. For sharp words, for angry thoughts, for opportunities missed, and for all that denies fullness of life, we are sorry. God of greatness and God of love, hear our voices joined in traditional prayer. In these moments, when we focus our hearts and minds on you, when we are awed by the wonder of your transcendence, when we are embraced by the mystery of your imminence, when we know ourselves accepted, loved, forgiven and renewed, we join our voices to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
So I thought I'd put a couple of pictures <coughs> up and I'll try and stand out of the way so you can see them. So it's pretty obvious, but you know, start with an easy question. Why not? What have we got pictures of? An angel and St. Andrew. Okay, so Wendy, a little bit harder question. How do you know it's an angel and how do you know it's St. Andrew? <laughs> well, I know it's St. Andrew because there's St. Andrew's cross behind him. Okay, so St. Andrew's cross behind <coughs> him, yeah. That could be a fairy, but she's a bit tall. <laughs> so the one on the left could be a fairy, but she is a bit, a bit tall. Okay. Okay, it looks feminine. Yep, that's okay. I'm just emphasising for um, because it could be female, it could be male. Okay, so what do we think then an angel looks like? Does an angel look like that rather beautiful white statue, which I think Wendy's right, it is feminine. I think it actually has got um, breasts on it, so I think it is a, it is a woman. Um, looks like she's holding flowers as well. Is that what an angel looks like, do you think? No idea. I've got a few shakes of heads. Anybody got any thoughts what an angel might look like? Something terrible. Something terrible. Okay, do you want to say a bit more about that, Rachel? Well, every time an angel of the Lord appears, the first words out of their mouth are, do not be afraid. <laughs> exactly. Well said, Rachel, yeah. Every time an angel appears from God, it says, do not be afraid, which I always think is code for, be afraid, be very afraid. Yeah, I think you're right, Rachel. Maybe they look desperately scary. Who knows? Okay. So the word angel comes from a Greek word, angelos or angelos, which just means a messenger. So what do you think a messenger might look like? Postman. Postman. A postman, yeah, <laughs> or a postwoman, a postperson, yeah, could be look like a postie. Okay, so shorts even in winter, <laughs> big bag, red t-shirt, Okay, possibly, yeah. Any other thoughts about what a messenger might look like? What do male people look like in the States, Rachel? Uh, blue pants, blue like button-up short sleeve shirt, driving around in a truck with, with uh, the steering wheel on the wrong side of the car for the States. Okay, <laughs> so they drive around in British cars, who knew? Uh, George, what about posties in, in Hungary? What would they look like? A bit similar to the UK. Right. But they don't wear red, do they? Do you? No, because I, no, I think a lot of Europe has the yellow horn, don't they, for yeah, post service? Kind of yeah. Okay. <coughs> okay. So yeah, so they they might just look like ordinary people. They might look like postal workers. What about Saint Andrew? We 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 know it's Saint Andrew because he's got a saltire behind him. He's got a thistle. He's got a Scottish lion rampant. Um, he's got an Ixus fish for some reason. Maybe because he's a fisherman. Um, he's got a nice fish hanging on the end of his staff. Um, how about what else suggests that he's a saint? Carl? It literally says Saint Andrew. Well, it does. <laughs> that helps. Good. But looking at the picture, ignoring the words, <laughs> I haven't actually spotted it, so Saint Andrew, that shows how alert I was when I chose it. Anything else that says to you this is a saint rather than just a person? Halo. Yep, so he's got the yellow halo or the yellow nimbus, as they're sometimes called. Anything else that makes it? Well, that's a saint. Sign yeah, so he's got his, his uh, trinity sign, his, his three fingers up for the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't look very kind of normal, does he? He's like... <coughs> yeah. Does anybody know what the word saint actually 
comes from. I'm going to have to get my notes here because this was a bit of a more complicated one ling linguistically when I was researching it. Saint comes from the Latin word for holy. So a holy person. And in European languages, holy is a word that means whole or health-giving as well as expressing something sacred, something of God, both far away and close at hand. What I found was interesting is actually the word holy could be related to the old English word for holly, because holly was a sacred bush <coughs> in pre-Christian times in, in these islands. So there you go, holly, you're holy. We, we always guessed as much, but now... <laughs> a spiky tree that's holy with lovely red berries but uh, interestingly in the Bible the word saint or hagios or holy people is used for the people who believe in Jesus so actually angels and saints look just like the rest of us and we can all be angels if we are messengers and we can all be saints as we try to follow Jesus, which is just a great excuse for me to sing one of my favorite childhood hymns, really. So let's sing together. I sing a song of the saints of God.
extracts from the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have, had, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the angel of the church in Smyrma, write, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, I know where you are living, yet you are holding fast, fast, to, my, fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before, before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. You have also you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, I know your works, your love, faith, service and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I give her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. To the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, I say, hold fast to what you have until I come. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, I know your works. You have a name for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is at the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, I know your works. Look, 
I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I am about to split I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those who I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The revelation of St. John the Divine, as it was known when I was at school anyway, is one of the most bewildering and misunderstood books of the Bible. And I think it is also one of the most misused and abused. This week, as I was looking at the various commentators that sit on my bookcase, I was struck very much that this is not just some kind of generic apocalyptic literature. It's not just written to scare us or promise us something, but actually it is an extended circular letter written to seven real churches in what we would nowadays know as Turkey. Some people speculate why seven churches, why seven and not eight or six, were there only seven churches in that area, were there more or were there less? Some people wonder why there weren't 12 or why there weren't 40, because seven is one of those biblical numbers, and it is often used as the number of perfection. Maybe it's just seven because these seven churches gave a good representation of what churches were like at that time. And if we look on this map here, we can see that they are spread 
throughout um, Asia Minor. We have got Patmos marked for us where we believe St. John was when he wrote his letter, his, his book of Revelation, and he had it about his vision. And if we see the orders of churches, we can actually begin to think how it might have been passed on from one church to the next. And certainly, um, the historians expect this, this, church, this letter was first taken to Ephesus um, on a ship and then was carried by messengers around to the different churches. What is definitely clear about these seven churches is they are all different. Their contexts are different and unique. The people who go to them are different and unique. And what it means for them to try and live out their faith is as unique and diverse as they are. One of the commentators I looked at this week um, titled his discussion of these messages as postcards from the edge. He noticed that they're very brief. They're very pithy. He doesn't waste any time being really nice in what he says. He gets straight down to what he wants to say, and he also is trying to stir them up and get a response from them. They are expressed as letters from Jesus to the angel in the churches in each place, so as if God is writing to the church, and they're meant to be read aloud in public. And here's the thing that I'd never really stopped to think about before. Each of those churches will hear what is said about the other six, and what is said about them will be heard by the other six. So whatever is said about them is not going to be secret or private. It's a bit like airing your dirty laundry in public. I don't know if any of you ever watched the television programme Great British Menu. Anybody watch it? Okay, this could fall very flat. No, Sheila watches it. Thank goodness for that. Well, I think there is a kind of similarity between the way the expert judges in that programme give feedback to the competitors and the style of these postcards. So in the television programme, there are three professional chefs who each prepare a course for a banquet. It could be the starter, it could be the fish course, it could be the main, it could be the dessert. Uh, and they share it with the, the judge, and they discuss with him how they think it went. And at the end of the programme, each day, the three chefs are lined up, and the judge comes out and gives them their feedback. And it always goes something a little bit like this. Sam, I loved your dish. The flavours were great, and the seasoning was just spot on. But you need to work on your presentation. Joe, your pastry was so crisp and light, and the filling was delicious. However, the portion was too small. And then just occasionally, when they give a score of 10, there is nothing that they fault, no obvious need for improvement. So it'll be something like this. Chris, you chose fantastic ingredients. You cooked them to perfection. Well done. Keep it up. And I think when we read the messages to the churches in these seven letters, this is the style that we discover. If we can look past the details of the words for a minute and just look at the style, it's almost as if the seven angels of the churches, the seven representatives of the churches, are lined up in front of a critical friend, Jesus, 
and he's going to give his verdict on their efforts so far. This is good, however, that needs to be worked on. You've done really well here, but you really need to think about that. And then for one, maybe two of them, we do seem to get a sense of, you know what, you're doing really well. Keep up that good work. And I think that's quite a helpful way to think of these letters. Jesus as a critical friend, offering feedback to the churches. Or John of Patmos, John the Divine, writing in that kind of a way to the churches. As one of the commentators I read notes, a key to understanding the book of Revelation is that God's judgment of sin and wickedness is already done. The work of the cross is complete. Redemption has been done. But these are people whose lived experience is difficult. They believe this, but they look around them and they can't quite see it. So they're struggling. They're trying to work out how they hold together this belief in what John also records Jesus as having said on the cross, the tetelestai, it is accomplished, it is completed. And the suffering and the struggling and the bad behavior they see around them. Redemption is accomplished. Sin is defeated. Jesus is Lord. And seven little churches, none of them more than around about 50 people, are trying to live that out in very, very challenging situations. So these are letters written by somebody who loves them, not by somebody who's over them. It's, they're written by somebody who wants them to be more fully who they already are. This is somebody who has earned the right to say to them, oh, actually, do you know what? This probably needs to be looked at but who is also really good at encouraging them and spotting what's good and, and bigging them up where that's needed. So we're going to look very briefly at these seven letters, these seven messages. And as we do so, try to keep in mind that the other six churches will be hearing these things as well. So they can't be, oh, well, we know we're not like that. Because actually on another occasion, maybe they would be. It's not about comparing themselves with others. It's also about hearing what life is like for others. But also, these are seven examples of what some churches were like. And so there is something timeless about what they're experiencing and what they're like that maybe is worth listening to. The first place the message is going to be read is Ephesus. Ephesus is a large multicultural city and apparently had a population even then of around a quarter of a million. The Christian church had been there for around 40 years, so it was fairly well established. And the message that is sent to this church goes something like this. You're very devout, very orthodox. You are, in fact, you are very, very holy. But you haven't balanced that with love and compassion you risk becoming legalistic. You say the right things, you do the right things, but you have no compassion. And a church without love and compassion 
isn't all that a church could be. And then the letter is carried north, about 35 miles, to a prosperous harbour city called Smyrna. And here is a little church that is being persecuted to an extreme degree. And actually, there isn't any criticism of that little church. Rather, they are called to keep on keeping on. There's a recognition that life is beyond difficult for them. They're being slandered, they're being expelled from places, they're being even experiencing violence. But they have been faithful. So the word to them is, is one of pure encouragement. You just keep on <coughs> keeping on. And then we go quite a lot further north up to Pergamum. This is the capital of the region at the time and will be strongly influenced by Greek culture. Some writers describe it as having been a bit like Lourdes for its day. This was a place where people came to seek healing from their infirmities and diseases. And there were lots of temples to Greek gods associated with healing. It was a place where people who were intelligent and wanted to learn came. They had a library of around about 200,000 volumes. That would be quite a big library even today. And in this melting pot of ideas, the believers had stayed faithful in the face of persecution. But they'd kind of got a bit lackadaisical. And we've offered two examples of what that looked like. One was that they were eating food offered to idols, which we know at that time was an absolute no-no. And the other one is they had become sexually promiscuous. They didn't kind of care about who they slept with. They just went off having lots of fun. And the message to them is something like this. You have stayed faithful through some very tough times, but at what cost? Have you abandoned your identity, what was unique about you, in order to survive? Not too dissimilar from Pergamum is the church at Thyatira or Theatira, depending where you went to school. A small church that seems to be almost the opposite of the church in Ephesus. They are commended for being loving, for their service, for their endurance, but they run the risk of what the theologians call antinomianism, a kind of lawless, anything-goes culture. There were no limits, no boundaries. Just as long as we're nice to each other, we can do what we like. If Ephesus was too hard, Theatera is too soft. It's a kind, hard-working church, but it's perhaps lost sight of what its values are, the why of its service and its love. And if it, if it kind of completely loses sight of who it is, then it risks not being a church at all. The letter is carried on again to Sardis, a very different place, a large town, a town that once upon a time had been very prestigious. It lay on the trade routes and probably at one point had been a centre for garment manufacture. So this is where you went if you wanted the high fashions. And actually, this is a really tough message for anybody to hear. Once upon a time, you were great and you enjoyed the prestige that went with that. But frankly, you're doing nothing now. You might as well be dead. So pull yourselves together. That's, that's tough stuff. I, I actually wrote down, ouch, after that. 
A church that is constantly harping back to its glory days is not doing what a church is meant to do. So they're kind of told, stop looking back. Think about now. What are you doing in the here and now? And that feels quite a negative message. But the positive within that is there is still hope. They can turn this around. They, they haven't been given up on. There is still hope for them to be the people they're made to be. And then we move on again. The letter is carried by this messenger further on to Philadelphia, which is in a wine-growing area, and it's sometimes apparently described as Little Athens. And here there isn't any obvious criticism. I've read the thing several times to try and find it, but I can't. There is no criticism of them. What is said to them is about opportunity, a door that nobody can close. This little church seems to somehow have avoided the extremes of some of the others. It hasn't become too legalistic, and it hasn't become too wishy-washy. It hasn't been sitting back on its laurels. It's, it's been doing its best. But it seems to lack confidence. It's not quite as sure in itself as perhaps it might be. And the message here is along the lines of this. You are uniquely placed to be the church that you're called to be. But you need to believe in yourselves. And you need to trust in God to help you to do that. And then finally, the church arrives in Laodicea after a long journey. This is a city characterised by financial institutions and medical schools. It's also an area that's known for a very poor water supply. Not so far away is a town called Hierapolis that has hot springs. And in another direction there is Colossae that has pure, clear water. But the geography is such that by the time the water reaches Laodicea, it is lukewarm and brackish. If you tried to drink it, you would want to spit it out because it tastes awful. And that is what this poor church is compared to. It's not a health-giving hot spring, and it's not a refreshing stream. It's stagnant, it's tepid, and it's unappealing. If it was too legalistic or too lax, then I guess that would be easier to identify. If it was resting on its laurels or it lacked confidence, there would be something to focus on. But this church it's just kind of doesn't know what it is. And the message to this church is that all is not lost. And Jesus says to them, those I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So perhaps the message to them is, you seem to have forgotten who you are. But it's not too late to change your ways. And so this letter has travelled its whole journey. All seven churches have heard the message sent to themselves and the message sent to the others. And I wonder how that felt. I wonder how it affected the way they listened to the rest of the book that we know as Revelation, when that was read to them. I wonder how they responded to what was said to them. And now 
a couple of thousand years later, we listen to those same messages to those seven churches. And I wonder how that's felt for us as we've heard them, as you've listened to my reflections on them. In a few moments, we're going to have a chance to respond. But as we begin to think about those questions, some music. When we read any of the New Testament letters, one of the things that actually we will find is the format is quite similar to those seven short messages. There are some opening words of praise. There is usually quite a big central section that speaks into the situation of that church, and then it ends with some encouragement and some blessing. This same kind of model of praise, challenge, and encouragement is often used in, in school reports, in feedback given on academic writing, and in my experience, in staff appraisals, even ministers' appraisals when they happen, which thankfully are not too often. So there is a risk that that has negative associations for us. If that has been a bad experience for us, I can understand that you don't want anything to do with that. But if it's done well, it can be helpful and it can be encouraging. So if you were going to write a letter to our church in that sort of style that was done by Jesus or John, what would you say? And if you thought that such a letter might be read by other churches, that actually the Baptist Union of Scotland would send it around every single Baptist church in Scotland, would that affect how you felt about it or what you might write? So I'm going to invite you, if you are up for it, to have a go at writing a letter to our church, or if you're visiting us, you can do that for your own church, that's totally fine. I'm just going to sort of send these off and you can pass them. If you can start passing them back, that would be great. And you can do this just for yourself and take it home as something to think and pray about. Or you could, if you so wish, as you leave, just drop it in this basket on the front so that the messages can be gathered up and shared because what my hope is is that if we do choose to write a message it will be a positive encouraging method message there might be things that we want to think about but it's how we say it as well as what we say 
So the letter will take the form of something like to Hillhead Baptist Church or to the church of which you are a member. I am delighted that it will be wonderful if, and I want to encourage you with these words. If you prefer not to write anything, that's fine, but we'll just have a couple of minutes to think about that and, and if you would like to, to write it down. And so we sing together, Lord of the Church, we pray for our renewing.
Our prayers for others today take the form of many messages written in a style similar to those at the start of the book of Revelation. So let's come to God with these messages of prayer. And we begin with ourselves. To the people of Hillhead Baptist Church write this. God loves you and is proud of all you seek to be and to do. May you continue to grow in grace, compassion and courage as you bear witness in the West End of Glasgow. We travel outwards to the Baptist Union of Scotland and those named in their weekly prayer diary. To Rebecca Sharp, chaplain at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, write this. God delights in your joyful and caring personality and calls you to bless those among whom you serve. May preparations for your upcoming marriage be helpful and hopeful and may God sustain you always. To the Baptist churches in Deniston, Denny and Dingwall write this. God knows you and loves you. God delights in all that is good about you, and God upholds you in all you attempt in Christ's name. May you grow in grace and faithfulness day by day. We travel a bit further to BMS World Mission, who this week ask us to focus on the United Kingdom Baptist context. To the Baptist Unions of Scotland, Wales and Great Britain write this. God rejoices in your ethnic, cultural and theological diversity and longs to bless you in all you do. May your hearts and minds always be open to the new things God reveals and may love be at the heart of all you attempt in Christ's name. the Baptist colleges and to the national settlement team write this. God is constantly calling people to serve as ministers and chaplains and is glad you play your part in facilitating this even when the process is long and challenging. May you be assured of God's spirit to guide you in all you do and may God give you peace. And then to the wider world. Too many areas, too many focuses. So just a few examples from the countless possibilities. To the leaders of parliaments, institutions and corporations, write this. God has entrusted the governance of communities to humans and granted freedom to discern how best to exercise that in each place. May your minds be clear to understand the responsibilities and complexities of your task. And may your hearts be filled with compassion, humility and grace. To the people without a voice, 
oppressed and marginalized write this. God has heard your cries and shares in your weeping. Even when God is silent or seems absent, may you cling on to the hope and love that shapes your humanity. And may this same God open the minds and hearts of those with the power to effect change that, that is needed to make your hopes a reality. To the people who just get on with their lives, unremarkable and unnoticed, write this. God knows you intimately. Your secret yearnings and your guilty regrets. Your everyday struggles and your daily delights. May you be assured that God loves you with a never-ending love that is renewed each day. And to all of creation, write this. God who created you calls you good and blesses you. May you be held safe in the love of God, the grace of Christ, and the unity of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
loving God who holds us safe in the cradle of your arms, we offer to you these gifts of our money. We offer to you the gifts of our lives. And we offer you the gift of our church. In the name of Christ. Amen. And so our closing hymn for all the saints who from their labours rest. Alleluia. worship is ended. Our life of service continues. May we be angel messengers of hope and faithful saints wherever we go, whatever we do, today and every day. 